You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day, all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, I'm here with Ron and Marty Cordes, husband and wife who together founded the Cordes Foundation, dedicated to 100% impact investing and strategic philanthropy. Ron was previously a co-founder and CEO of AssetMark and co-authored the book, The Art of Investing, while Marty directs the foundation's philanthropic and gender lens investing work, advancing economic opportunities for women. Ron and Marty are also part of Tonic, a global network of impact investors that invest in positive social and environmental change. And I'm proud to announce that this conversation with Ron and Marty is brought to you as part of a partnership between Poetry of Impact and Tonic. Welcome, Ron and Marty. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. Love, um, love the poetry of impact. I think that's it. This has such a nice ring and a, a whole different way of looking at things. Yeah, nice. I mean, what what resonates most uh, with you in terms of that naming, in terms of the poetry of impact? Um, that there's that it's not just work. That there's beauty in in the result and the end result. That there's that there's just a a nice flow and feel to it. Mm-hmm. Just, sure. just like poetry. There, it just makes yeah. you feel good. <laughs> For sure. Now, uh, you know, a large part of the impact community um, knows you for a lot of different things. But for me in particular, I came to um, know you guys through your daughter, Stephanie, when she was presenting your foundation portfolio and its 100% intention. It's about a year, two years ago, actually more than a year. Of course, of course, everything's more than a year at this point. <laughs> two years ago. Um, <laughs> it's funny how the mind works like that. It was about two years ago and we were in Philadelphia and I was like super impressed on the amount of thought and detail. And she was, a part of it also was she was not just sharing the portfolio, Stephanie, your daughter, but she was also touching about a little bit about the process that you as a family went through. But what I wasn't able to hear was the process that Ron and Marty went through. It was basically what Stephanie went through in order to get to this point. So she was very forthcoming about, uh, you know, her, her role or what she had to sort of grapple with and deal with. Take us back to that moment. First of all, take us back to the moment where, uh, you know, the moment where it became possible, right? I mean, the actual catalytic moment where in the material realm, this became possible. So that particular event. And then two, what type of transformation went on with you two to actually get to the point where you actually set up the foundation, Cordis Foundation, and that third leg is like, we'd like to bring our daughter into this earlier, you know, earlier in, you know, in her life as opposed to later. Huh. So, you know, it, interestingly, um, I think we even have to take a step even further back before that moment. Um, 
to really kind of understand where we were coming from and what our thought process was, which was we've always um, been involved in philanthropy, more on a local level. And we always felt that it was really important to us to bring um, our daughter um, to exposure to philanthropy. And even when she was little, we would do a, a Christmas toy drive. She would be a part of that. So she was always a part of what we were doing in philanthropy on the local level. Now we can fast forward to, to the big moment. Yeah, yeah, and we like to say that philanthropy is kind of in our DNA as a couple because we met in college on the Cal Berkeley campus doing a philanthropy project together. My fraternity was selling flowers and we recruited sorority members to help us in that flower selling for underprivileged kids. So that's where we kind of got our start uh, many, many years back. Um, but yeah, the catalytic event for the foundation was the sale of my business, Asset Mark. Uh, that's what kind of gave us the liquidity and a pool of assets that we could really do something important to direct. Um, and that, that sale really honestly came about driven by the fact that the business was successful and there was a market, but um, we were in our mid forties and we wanted to really do something meaningful and on a personal level, I was ready to kind of move from a first act to a second act, which if you'd asked me then, I would have said the second act was philanthropist. And while it has been this whole concept of impact investing, something we'd not really been aware of previously, we were we came in very new to the impact investing space in 2006 when we created the foundation, uh, when the space itself was very much in its infancy. And... Um, so we, we just kind of moved from there to determine, okay, how could we use these resources that we now had available to do good with? How could we use them as effectively as possible and use them all as opposed to just using the small portion in a foundation that's generally directed to philanthropy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I was all in, we're going to work on women's issues. We're going to donate to these charities. And we started um, attending conferences. And as we're attending these conferences, we start hearing this, this term that was new to me. And it was gender lens investing. Oh, my God, what does that mean? It's not just about philanthropy. It is using the other side of your portfolio. It's your investment side and investing in, in different things, um, in different um, ways that you are, are working to help women um, economically. And the one thing that also stuck with me on that was that gender lens investing is looking at the whole thing. It's not just looking at the end recipient. It's looking at the entire value chain. It's looking at, well, who runs the business? Who sits on the board? Um, who, who, um, Who's it serving? So it's a it's a combination of looking at the entire picture and not just the end result. The, the moment that you guys, uh, you, Ron, you, you guys talk around like the mid, uh, you know, the middle of the decade of 2005, 2006 um, time where the space was in its infancy. You just had this catalytic event that allowed you to express what you already had that intention, but on the material plane, you were able to sort of amplify it, obviously, and leverage it in a capacity that you previously hadn't been. Um, 
And because you came from business and your background, which is sort of like hardwired to optimize for efficiency and effectiveness and, and so forth in general, um, and that's the working assumption in most sort of commercial models. I was curious, was there a moment where it's like, gosh, I want to make sure that I do the right thing here. Like, I don't want to, uh, because, uh, because there was no guardrails, right? You guys got into it early. And because you came from this business background, I'm curious at a subconscious level, what kind of negotiation took place because you were allocating uh, resources in a way that may not have had as much clarity as in the business world. When you allocate X, you, you can usually account for a Y outcome because there's some like historical pattern of performance uh, to some extent, especially if you're affiliated with those processes. In this case, the space was new to you. So I'm curious on how you navigated and negotiated that reality of like, oh, this is new to us. And were you comfortable like allocating in the, you know, in the midst of fog, in other words, right? I mean, was it a foggy scenario? It's like, we still need to get on the road and travel here, even if it's foggy. So it was foggy. I, I think the analogy I used to use was the wild, wild west, right? There weren't a lot of guardrails. And there also wasn't a lot of support as there is today. There wasn't an organization, for example, like Tonic or groups like Impact Assets or even investment advisory firms specifically designed now to work with folks desiring impact. So um, we just kind of dove in. And um, I, I, it, we started by meeting social entrepreneurs. One of our board members and dear friends was running a a program at a university. He was bringing in world-class social entrepreneurs. And we just kind of, the business person in me fell in love with the idea of applying business metrics to build sustainable solutions. And one of the things we realized pretty quickly on was that these folks didn't only need grant capital, right? Many of them were building businesses and needed investment capital and equity and debt. And that's almost where the first light bulb went off and said, wait a minute, like we we can be an investor here as well as just being a, a philanthropist. Marty, was there any type of like, I mean, what was going through you? Um, was it a moment of like embracing the wildness or was it a combination of like, I love the wildness yet, but heck, I wish I had some guardrails just to make sure that what I'm doing is actually somewhat like going in the right direction. No, you know, no, it was exciting that we were on this road of discovery, that we were um, figuring out new ways to make a difference, that um, we were using all of our, um, both sides of our, our portfolio and not just the one. So, no, it was it was super exciting. Um, and, and also, we weren't like, it wasn't like we had invested our entire portfolio in the wild, wild west. We were cautious when we started. So um, it, 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 you know, it, it took a little bit. Um, it was a little bit of a journey before we got to 100%. That was going to be my second question was, was my second question was like, how much were you exposed, right? In terms of like, was it an experimental pot or was like, I mean, how, like how much were you taking your intention and putting it out there um, in terms of like, um, your overall resource base. And I see, and I just say that because 
it helps because a lot of people don't know how to begin it or, you know, this process, like how big or how small to start. And then has it grown since then where all of a sudden more and more of your resource base is intentional, uh, is more three-dimensional. Um, so maybe you can sort of take us through uh, that, that discovery process a little bit. Sure, sure. So, so not surprisingly, when we started, our portfolio was 100% conventionally managed, right? I, I had run an investment firm. I was actually still involved transitioning that firm to the new owners. So I was still, you know, we had a team of people. So the original goal, I, I still remember, a, we, and we maintain an outside board in the foundation just to get outside influence and, um, and advice. So we went to our board at the end of 2007. And we said, we'd like to allocate over the next year, 20% of our portfolio to what we called at the time, social enterprise investments, because it's funny, the term impact investing didn't even exist yet. Jed Emerson and others hadn't created it yet. So we thought, well, we're going to be investing in social enterprises. So let's call these things social enterprise investments. Um, 20% might seem like a lot, you know, a lot of the bigger foundations are getting in one or 2% at a time, but we were excited and we felt like we could do it in a way that was diversified. So it wasn't like we were going to put 10% each in two really high risk startups, right? We invested in about 10 different vehicles. They were funds. It was across debt and equity. Uh, so, you know, I, one of my favorite lines is the old, you know, the longest journey in the world is the 12 inches between your head and your heart. And we were definitely coming from the heart and wanting to do this, but also wanting to apply kind of investment rigor and discipline to say, let's kind of build a portfolio out of this. But truthfully, what was getting us really excited was the impact themes that we were investing in sure. and some of the people that this capital could actually really be directed toward. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the discovery process on, on the portfolio side. I want to sort of go inside the family a little bit. Um, at what point did, um, did you bring Stephanie in and what kind of conversations and what kind of like, you talked about having an outside board for the board. I was curious, did you consult other families who were in similar situations on, and did like you try to get a feel for what what has worked, what hasn't worked, they're just getting, um, you know, because I, I think about it, I have a young, I have a three year old right now, and obviously, uh, you know, he's going to be in situation, you know, he's going to be in a situation that I wasn't uh, raised in, uh, but and it's questions that cross my mind, like what is a healthy way to actually share the intention, right, or to integrate the intention? I would be really interested. To know and be able to share this with audiences about what was going through you guys and and sort of how and and how you went through that discovery process. So you know we just we just went along with what felt natural and right to us. And again, it was important to us from the from when she was really little to expose her to philanthropy. So just like we would um, bring her along on local projects. When we started the foundation, we had her come to some of the board meetings. We always told her what we were doing. Um, we sought her advice. We always just tried to keep her in the loop so that she was aware and 
that she would develop her own interest. And the one thing also that was important to us was that we didn't want to push her into it. We wanted her to get there on her own accord with her own interests. And um, quite honestly, I think, well, a couple of things happened. One, one was that um, because she was in college at the time, she hadn't really been able to participate in one of our events called the Opportunity Collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she graduated, she, uh, she was able to come to one. And I have to say that that for her was eye-opening and revolutionary because she suddenly saw people her age um, doing philanthropy and really, in her eyes, changing the world. Um, and she was thinking to herself, what am I doing? You know, I want to be doing this somehow. So I think that was that was really the catalyst that got it moving along um, probably a lot quicker than we had anticipated. Hmm. Yeah, she was the 2013. So the, the event that we will hopefully rehost again post-pandemic has yeah, been sure. for 12 years. We've been involved in hosting a five-day event in Mexico. We bring together philanthropists, impact investors, social entrepreneurs. And as Marty said, in 2013, Steph had the opportunity to come for the first time. She had her dream job too at the time. She'd worked hard. She'd had a couple of internships. So she was working at Condé Nast in New York on one of their magazines, very focused on fashion and media. And she took a week's vacation, came down, and I think it's fair to say it rocked her world. Mm-hmm. Um, and she came back and within a number of weeks was kind of starting to explore conversations with us about like, what would, you know, how would it work if I got more involved in the foundation? At the time, we didn't have staff. We were supporting a, a couple of different university programs and leveraging a lot of interns out of those programs, a lot of really bright young people. Uh, but so, and we were thinking about, okay, how do we build out a team? And um, so those two kind of came together nicely at the beginning of 2014. The, and then where does, and where did it go from there from, so that was the spark in 2013. And now all of a sudden it's like, you know, the integration moment, right? It's like, okay, well, this has pretty much been Ron and Marty's endeavor. Now, now your daughter, Stephanie, has expressed interest. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you got to sort of work through the mechanics a little bit, like the how part, right? And so can you walk us through, though, you know, that integrative journey or, you know, the moments where there might have been some hiccups, like confusion um, and some, you know, harmony. Uh, but I'm guessing there was somewhat of a dance, right? There was some, I mean, there was. I mean, yes, there was. And it was, it was. um it was a slow dance, <laughs> <laughs> kind of figuring out what the next steps were, how to how to move in the right direction. And I would have to say that overall, I think that we have been extremely lucky in that there was a natural, um, natural way for all of our interests to be combined. It wasn't like she was really interested in saving the whales which would have been completely out of our, out of the area that we were working in at the time. Had she wanted to save the whales, we would have figured it out. But because she was interested in sustainable fashion, that squarely felt, uh, fell into the area of economic opportunities for women. 
most of the people in sustainable ethical fashion are women. If you look at the supply chain, it's it's predominantly women. So that was that was an easy integration into impact investing, economic opportunities for women. Um, it 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 didn't just happen like that overnight, but that's where we where it evolved to. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and you 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 ask, and sometimes we wonder why we didn't perhaps be more aggressive in finding mentors and taking advice from other families. Um, I would say, candidly, part of it is that we were still. Um, nursing a few wounds from trying taking advice from experts around impact investing. So the first two sets of administrators and attorneys we had in the foundation very much counseled us against doing any impact investing. One told us we'd lose our charitable exemption, that the treasury would be after us. Uh, it was just the times, right? No one was doing it. Yeah, yeah. And others would say, just do it as a PRI within your grants budget, but oh my God, don't, you know, don't attack the endowment. So we found ourselves really just being very self-sufficient, finding our own advisors. And so I will say that when, when Steph approached us about joining the foundation, we kind of took that same tact and said, okay, let's figure it out ourselves. Um, and at the time, she actually, when she joined in February of 14, we brought on our very first executive director, uh, a young man who had been leading one of our university programs. So we'd worked with him for a number of years. And we brought on uh, a third person who was our portfolio director to actually build out our impact investing portfolio, which had started at 20% and it moved its way up and was now at that point about a third of the portfolio. But we certainly had visions of growing it and knew that we needed some professional support internally, particularly because well, my former firm didn't do anything in impact investing. And there were there weren't yet there just simply very few firms available that we could turn to hmm. for help. We thought we'd build that capacity out. Yeah. So Steph kind of came in as part of our initial team, and um, that team worked actually quite well together. And um, to Marty's point, she kind of found the lane for her around sustainable fashion that was very much rhyming with the other things that we were passionate about and, um, and led us down that direction. It was poetry. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. It was good. It was good. But I can see that. I can see how that happened because there really wasn't a map out there. You were sort of like, you had the intention and you wanted to travel and you wanted to go out West. I'm just, this is all a metaphor. I mean, it was a little bit like a Lewis and Clark mission where you just like, well, I have this little piece of paper that says, you know, follow these contours. But for the most part, I'm just going to have to travel and map it out a little bit. And that's true. And we didn't crash the wagons and we all live. <laughs> so, you know. so, so there was the um, a discovery process. And obviously, discovery is a lifelong uh, quest if I'm mean, sort of hardwired and enjoy that process. Right. So there was a discovery both on the grammar side of how to set up the foundation, how much to allocate, and sort of how to put the team together. And then the discovery of integration of uh, a daughter, you know, your daughter, Stephanie, in the process. Now, all told, while working through discovery and working in the space of impact, you're also being transformed, right? So it's not all just outer. 
but this work's coming back at you. And so what I'm really interested in knowing over the past 15 to 20 years, how have you been transformed as a result of these discoveries, both in the world of grammar of impact and the poetry of impact with the integration of your daughter? Basically, now we're going to circle it back to you and like compare yourself now to where you were, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And like, what kind of either inner or outer transformation have you seen in yourself that maybe others haven't seen, or maybe they have seen? Just curious on like, when like you reflect on that, what comes up for you? Wow. Um, so definitely, I would say for me personally, I'm a lot more informed. Um, and I'm also aware of um, the difference that we can make more on a, on a, on a global level. And a lot of this has come through the travels that we've been on. I know that when um, we went to Africa, um, well, Ron had already been to Africa a couple of times and it was our first trip there as a family and visiting different organizations and, um, and experiencing um, some events there just, I think really informed me of not only what women were going through and the difference that we could make, but my personal difference, how I can make a difference. And um, if I can share uh, a story that, really, for me, solidified um, why we're doing this kind of work. And it was, we had, um, we were in Africa in a small, small town community. And we had been invited to, um, to a brie. Um, that's a traditional African barbecue. And we were all excited about going, we get there, the um, we're greeted. The children are 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 dancing for us and and talking for hours. And then it's time for dinner. And um, and this is what like just just completely has stayed with me for since the since that trip. And that was that when we were all called up for dinner, um, all the men were called up first. So it was. Um, all the, the men of the house and then the, the men that were the guests, um, they were called at first to, to come to the buffet line and, and enjoy. And then the women guests were called up. Um, and so I thought, oh, this will be fun. I'll be able to talk to the other women who've been cooking and making all the food and kind of get to know them a little bit and hear their stories and well, that was just not the way it happened. They were not allowed to come up for dinner. As it turns out, um, the women guests went up and the other ladies did not. They, they weren't going to eat. And their dinner was if there was anything left over. These were the women that had been cooking all day for us. And they were going to get to eat if there was something left over. That, how could that be? That just, to me, in my world, that just did not make any sense. And since then, um, 
you know, doing more work and, and talking to other people. It's like, that's, that's the way it is because women feel like they don't have options. Women don't feel like they can go out and get jobs and support themselves and support their communities, um, their children. Um, so these are the best situations that they can find for themselves. So at that moment, it was like, yes, economic opportunities is something that we need to focus on. Mm-hmm. So, so my aha was actually similar in that it happened on the same continent. Um, a number of years earlier, in 2008, I took a group of academics and business people to East Africa. And we found ourselves in November of 08 in Bayubo, Uganda, this tiny little village where we'd supported the founding of a microfinance project run by widows in the village. And these women were very excited to see us. It was five hours out of the beaten track. They did not get a lot of Westerners up there. Mm -hmm. And um, so our group met with these 20 women, the first borrowers, and they were showing us the businesses that they created. And this one woman who has now become a friend, her name's Florence Maduku, tugged on my shoulder. She had something really important that she wanted to say. And when we got to her business, she didn't speak English. She was translated from the native tribal language of of Luau. And what she said just has always stuck with me. She said, we appreciate when you, people from the Western world, come to Uganda to save our children, but we need to save our own children. Thank you for investing in us so we can do that. Mm. So, it really hit me that here I'd spent my 30-year career as an investor professionally, kind of helping wealthy people get wealthier in a respect. And now I had the opportunity to use those same skills potentially to help hopefully thousands of women like Florence who were looking at things like microfinance and working capital as ways to get kind of rungs up the ladder. And so um I came back to the U.S. super excited about how we could use finance, and um, you know that that really kind of propelled our making a decision to go even deeper into impact investing and put a larger percentage of the portfolio in, and and try to create this focus around, as Marty said, creating economic opportunities for women, which we've tried to do both globally and domestically. Uh, you know, the dollars certainly go further uh, in some of the emerging economies around the globe. And so we put a lot of our focus there. Now, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate um, on, on, on something that, um, so there is sort of in, especially in US, in Europe, or just actually in the global sort of capital system, there's a critique on the philanthropic world that the only reason philanthropy exists is because capital is unjust in the first place, right? Um, I mean, there is that thread of conversation going on about the justice of how, of how the capitalistic system is actually set up. And as a result, the reason why that need exists is because, because of inherent sort of flaw within how we live and how we um, allocate uh, capital or how are sort of the essence of capital. I'm curious about what your response would be given that you're doing this work, but is in the back of your mind, do you do you sit with this idea that, hmm, it's like I'm doing this work in the world, but is there something behind my work 
in the system that I'm in that is inherently creating situations that I am seemingly helping with. You see what I'm trying to get at? I'm trying to get at the idea that, um, and, and it comes up and sometimes it's been like, I'm part of Threshold Foundation, which is an organization of, uh, you know, a philanthropy organization. And one of the subtopics is also is like, especially the more sort of postmodern critiques of capital is like, well, philanthropy is only necessary because of the injustice of the existing system. I'm curious on like what comes up for you when like, like you hear that. A couple of, couple of thoughts come to mind. One, and maybe we're different than others in this respect, but, but we didn't come into this with a sense of guilt that needed to be assuaged. Um, and, and not that we don't respect the fact that we've come at it from a privileged position, but I mean, maybe it would feel different if, if the business that, that I built that allowed this was a coal miner or a weapons manufacturer, right? So I, I feel like I was engaged in building a responsible business that ended up having financial success and we're now able to redirect that success. Um, I love the old line, capitalism is the worst economic system ever created, except for all other options. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, so we're coming at this not to blow the system up, but I do believe that capitalism can be done in a way that is a lot more inclusive than the way it's been done before. So. Areas like microfinance have good and bad, right? We're very mindful of the interest rates and the way in which uh, loans are collected and uh, you know, the, the care at which uh, borrowers are counseled about taking on loans and building businesses, et cetera. And we've put a lot of our uh, effort and philanthropic dollars into training, right? Entrepreneurship training and other things um, and education, just because we believe that um, there are learned skills that many folks um, kind of at the bottom of the economic pyramid, if you will, just don't normally have access to that are second nature to, to many folks in, in wealthier countries. Yeah, and I also think that in general, um, philanthropy is everyone's responsibility at whatever level you're at. Um, and it's not just about dollars, it's about time, talent. Um, so I think it's really, it's really, it should be all inclusive. Everybody should have their own role in it. So we're actually getting close to, um, sort of finalizing, um, our conversation here a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, there's been some different themes that have come up. Um, I'd like to sort of hear from you in terms of what like um, came up for you that's still sort of potentially unexpressed, right? Or that longs to be shared, either either something that came you came into this conversation potentially with, or that came up in the conversation um, that uh, you would like to share with um, our audience. Mm -hmm. Let me flip the question around. Sure. There's something that you wanted to hear from us that we haven't quite gone down that road or you'd wanted us to explore a little deeper. 
Well, I'm always fascinated because I think uh, I'm always it's at a just like a ridiculously personal um, uh, vantage point with a three-year-old child right now. I'm really fascinated by how people integrate. Um, I've seen I've seen uh, wealth and resources and people not getting that right and how their families sort of disintegrated as a result of that. Um, and um, and so when I look and when I look at like folks like yourself who have went through it, I really feel like I'm a student and I'm really like, I'm listening really attentively. And I love the way that you sort of just, I were candid about it. It's like, well, we sort of were doing a little bit on the gut uh, on a ways and we were just feeling into what felt right. And um, so for me, I can hear those for a long time because I would hate to, I, I would hate for something that I'm doing and from a family perspective, be something that uh, thwarts, you know, his, his own development because one of, so both of my parents have already passed away. I'm already, I'm 48 and uh, my father passed away 10 years ago. My mom already passed away three years ago. And uh, in both of their sermons, I honored uh, one thing that I always loved about my parents is, is that um, they really did not care um, what we were doing as long as um, we were doing what felt right to us. And that was bringing a sort of a sense of joy. And their idea was that we can provide all the love for you at the house, but don't come home and complain because essentially when you start complaining, um, you're essentially taking and forgetting that you have a choice. You, we've been fortunate enough to have a choice on direction. And so my parents never forced, you know, we come from a fourth generation dairy farming family. My dad never did say, I never did expect for us to carry on that tradition. My brother and I, my brother's a theologian going through a PhD program in England. Now I end up going to get a PhD. This does not happen in the community that I grew up in. And uh, they didn't, ex every time, uh, whatever we did, our parents were just excited about what we were sharing with them as long as they felt like we were being whole in the world. And so I want to be able to pass that on, but I also didn't grow up with resources at the level that my child's going to experience uh, as well. So I'm just trying to understand and, and we'll see what that new awareness. But it, so now in, in this new role that we've had over the last decade and with a number of the groups, including Tonic's 100% group and others that we yeah. belong to, we've had an opportunity to talk to lots of other families about their journeys. and. I do believe if you bring a group of families with resources together and you close the door and there's no meeting, you say, what is it that really keeps you up at night? It's the concern that their resources and their wealth are going to debilitate the next generation as opposed to empower them. And we're big believers that incorporating philanthropy and bringing your kids into that and developing and sharing family values can be a super important component to that empowerment, but, and maybe it's akin to the, the things that work for us with, with Steph, we've always said you want to pull your kids in instead of push them. Mm -hmm. And um, philanthropy to them, as Marty said, might look different than it did for our generation. And impact investing certainly looks different. In fact, we're finding that in a lot of families, it's the millennial generation that's pushing the family to get into <laughs> impact investing. Yeah. And as the family makes a commitment to get in, they actually engage that generation because now they're excited about 
you know, for the first time, they're excited about meeting their investment advisor, right? Because the things that they're investing in like matter and they can understand them. So, um, and I would say that the important thing is that you don't wait till they, I don't know, get to be 12 or, or 10 to expose them to philanthropy. I think there's age appropriate philanthropy all the way through. Mm -hmm. And you also um, have them be involved, not just in attending, but in, in picking different things for the family in, in doing things together. And I think that that just develops in them this, this desire, this interest. Love it. Uh, yeah, super helpful, um, not just for myself, but obviously for, for many others as well. Uh, Ron and Marty, before we uh, check out here, where can people learn more, more about the work that you, you guys are doing in the world? Well, we have a website, uh, so they could certainly check out CordisFoundation.org. We've got a lot of, of all you know, relationships up there with investees and grantees um, and some of the media work that we've done and events. So the yeah. organizations we support. Um, uh, yeah, just things that we're involved in. The boards we sit on. Yep. Ron and Marty. Thank you so much. It's been a just uh, it's been a wonderful hour. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. This was this was great. This was fun, Gino. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.